Thank you, Father. It's a great privilege for me to be invited here to speak at St. John the Beloved. I see some familiar faces. It's always a great opportunity to come from Washington, D.C. to spend some time in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Having grown up in another Commonwealth in our country, the Commonwealth of Kentucky, I know very much to say Commonwealth and not the state of Virginia. Of course, as Father said, uh, I had the great privilege of having been named a missionary of mercy by our Holy Father, Pope Francis, and to be, in his words, um, an ambassador or an emissary uh, during this extraordinary jubilee of mercy. Now, of course, being a Dominican, I had asked to be a missionary of justice. <laughs> but mercy is the order of the day. Yet... The mercy of God, we Dominicans, following St. Thomas Aquinas, cannot be understood without understanding God's justice. It doesn't exist apart from God's justice. In his Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas Aquinas speaks of God's justice and mercy together just after he speaks about God's love and what God's love is. And this will be instructive for us this evening as we take some time with St. Thomas to reflect on God's love as it manifests itself in his justice and in his mercy, both of which, justice and mercy, the angelic doctor asserts, are present in every one of God's works towards his creatures. Every one. Justice and mercy are present. We use words like justice and mercy with reference to God, but at the outset this evening, we need to, and I'm going to ask you, to suspend our pre-existing definitions about what those words mean when we use them to describe our life in this world. This is Theology 101, right? That words that are used both of God and of us are only analogously related. That perfections as they exist in God exist purely and simply. And when we use words of God that describe his perfections, how we then use those words to describe perfections in this world, those very same words, whether we're talking justice or mercy or love or good or true or beautiful, are reflections of what those words really do mean because only God is the prime source of those of that meaning of those words. I'll get into a little bit of that a little bit of that later. Now, borrowing from Aristotle, Aquinas asserts that justice is giving to another what is their due, what's coming to them, what is owed to them. Now, we tend to think of justice solely in terms of criminal justice, right? giving to offenders the sentence that is their due for the crimes they commit. But there's more to justice than that, for both Aristotle and for Aquinas. It's justice, for example, to give our parents what is their due, our loyalty, our filial piety. It's justice to show respect to others according to their station in life, as is their due, regardless of whether we like them or even agree with them. So justice moves in a sort of upward direction. It's justice to pay respect, for example, to um, the president of the United States were he to walk in the room, even if you didn't vote for him or don't agree with him. That's justice, okay? 
because of his position in life. Now, justice for St. Thomas also moves laterally, if you will, between fellow citizens and sharers in society and in human nature. So there are certain things we owe each other, respect, help, friendliness, precisely because we live in a community with each other. St. Thomas calls this lateral communal justice, if you will, commutative justice. Commutative justice varies from one level of community to the next. So at its broadest, there's a justice we owe each other because we all live in the community of mankind. We're all, we all share the human nature. So we owe things to each other because of that. But then you can also speak of a commutative justice of a country, what Americans owe each other. Or a commutative justice of a church or a parish. Or of a family, what siblings might owe each other. Commutative justice, St. Thomas says, governs mutual giving and receiving, how we give and receive from each other. Now, it should be clear, then, that when we speak of God's justice, we cannot mean any of that. Why? Well, because God does not owe us respect due to our station in life, right? in the way we owe respect to our parents, or the way we owe respect to God, even. So there is no justice in that way for God, in God for us. Neither can we say that there is a, a commutative justice that God has for us, as if we are in a community of equals with him. We're not. There is no mutual giving and receiving between us and God. And that's one of the first planks of progress in the spiritual life, to understand that we give God nothing on our own. So it's not a give and take with God, ever, ever. Okay. This is a very important point that I'll be stressing throughout this talk. Our interaction with God is not like a two-piston engine. He gives, we receive, so he does more than we do more. He gives more. So that's not how the spiritual life works. It's not a give and take with God. St. Thomas is very clear on this. We do nothing that obliges God to do anything that he hasn't already willed to do. Okay? We can't parlay with God. We can't bargain with God. Right? Now, there is another type of justice that St. Thomas speaks of, which he calls distributive justice. This is the justice that a ruler, perhaps a government, or parents in a family, or anyone leading a group of people has, in which goods, respect, what have you, are distributed to the multitude according to need, according to dignity. It's a sort of top-down justice, if you will. Now, this type of justice, St. Thomas says, God does have because he is a ruler. Citing Dionysius, Aquinas says that God gives to all existing things what is proper to the condition of each. He gives to all what is proper to the condition of each. Now, that's not just you and I. That's also geese and ants and grub worms. He gives all that is proper to the condition and nature of each. 
So God gives to each thing in the universe, each created thing in the universe, each person here, what is proper and what is fitting. But the problem still remains. Does God do this because he must do it? Because there's something owed or due to his creatures. And here St. Thomas is subtle, as he often is. Now, of course, it cannot be a question that there is some external necessity imposed on God. He's God. Sometimes you'll hear people say God created the universe because he had so much love that it necessarily overflows into creation and therefore he creates. That's actually a heresy. Okay, don't, don't ever say that. God does what God does out of no necessity other than himself. What he has willed. So St. Thomas reminds us in this question that God is truth. All right? And anything he does, anything he wills, he wills according to truth. Which is to say that whatever God does, he does in line and in accordance with his own wisdom. That is his only necessity. It's an internal necessity to him. And that wisdom is not something that we have access to in all ways and all times. We cannot often understand God's wisdom. We cannot often understand why God permits things to happen that he does. All right? We can only understand God's wisdom in as much as he himself has revealed it and revealed portions of it. So it is his wisdom that imposes necessity on himself, essentially. But unlike, unlike us, wisdom and truth are not something separate from him. They are him. Does that make sense? So St. Thomas says, and here's a direct quote. I'm in the uh, first part of the Summa, by the way, question 21, if you all are interested in reading this later. St. Thomas says this. It is owed to God that there should be fulfilled in creatures what his will and his wisdom require and what manifest his goodness. He continues, in this respect, God's justice regards what befits him inasmuch as he renders to himself what is owed to himself. So, you see, anything God does in justice, you can see where we're going with this too, I'm sure you can anticipate that it's also going to be true of mercy, right? Anything God does in justice is first and foremost not because he owes anything to us, but because he owes himself. He creates us to manifest a goodness and a glory that is due to him, not due to us and owed to us. He is true to himself and true to his wisdom. So God exercises justice when he gives to each thing, each created reality, what is due to it by nature or condition, which itself is created by him according to his wisdom. So to put it, one of the ways St. Thomas mentions this, 
is he has deigned to create, which is to say he has willed to create mankind, male and female, as rational animals who we might say work, right? And so part of that divine logic then means that in justice to his plan for mankind, he owes things like having two arms and hands, and having a body that can process thoughts, you know, and that helps you process thoughts and so that you can know and you can love. That we are created to be rationally loving creatures called to communion with him was his choice, his wisdom, not ours. And his justice, therefore, is to stay true to what he has planned for his creatures. And everything that he does for us flows from that, from his decision for himself that, in the words, if I can quote, even though this was much before my time, my mother nonetheless quoted it to me. I think it was the only question of the Baltimore Catechism she remembered. Even if, that, in the words of the Baltimore Catechism, that we were made to know, love, and serve him in this life and be happy with him in, in the next, in the life to come, that is not for his benefit, it's for ours. But he created us in his wisdom for that. You see the point. Because it is heresy to say that God needs anything, it would be a heresy to suggest that he needs us to know him, love him, and serve him in this life. Rather, what we are is what God in his wisdom willed us to be. And he, in his providence, wills to fulfill what he himself willed. Let you think about that, and uh, that'll keep you up tonight. So his justice is a justice to himself. And this is why Aquinas speaks about both justice and mercy in the context of love, of the love of God. For St. Thomas, love is, shall we say, a drive. It's a drive to the good. He uses the word appetite. It's a drive to the good. And good, in Aristotelian Thomistic world, an Aristotelian Thomistic worldview, is that which is perfective. It's that which perfects you. And this is true from small goods like a decent pizza to the greatest good of marriage to the perfect good and true good, which is God himself. Right? So that there's some attraction. The more perfect a good is, the more beautiful it is, the more attractive it is, the more I seek it, the more I love it. Right. So it's not a, even though we, for us, the word love is too small for a lot of the things we love. For St. Thomas, it's important to say that you can speak in a certain way of geese loving to fly south because that's their good. That's what God in his wisdom inclined their nature for or directed, directs them to. Now, here's the thing about goodness and even existence. So good is perfective in as much as it exists. It's attractive in as much as it's perfective. All goodness, as I said at the beginning for St. Thomas, is in fact God's. Right? So any good in this life, be it marriage, be it you know, sacrificial love, be it even a pepperoni pizza, is in some sense derived from God's own goodness. Okay? There is no goodness separate from God, just like there is no existence separate from God. Right? One of the ways you might think about it is, 
is the pan on the stove. The heat of the pan does not belong to the pan. It belongs to the flame beneath the pan, right? But the pan is truly hot, right? It's the same with goodness and existence. We exist in the fire of God's existence, in the fire of his goodness, right? It's not our heat. It's not our goodness. It's his. It's not our existence. It's his that we participate in. So in other words, God puts goodness in us. He puts, if you will, loveliness in us. He is what, it's his goodness that makes us attractive, makes us exist and makes us perfect. It's his. And the more perfect we are, the more good we are, the more lovely we are, the more lovable we are, all of that is from God. All of that's from God. That's not ours. So it's important to note, then, that at a very basic, we might say metaphysical level, God loves us and loves his creation, not because there is something intrinsically meritorious about it separate from him. He loves you not because you're great, but because he is great. Okay? Because he is love and goodness. Now, nobody can come to him, and this is where we're going to get into the mercy and grace. So I need you to follow me on this. It might, I hope this doesn't get too confusing. St. Thomas, it's one of these things, when you read St. Thomas, you can read them over and over again, and then it's only when you start to prepare a talk like this that you're like, I think I understand this now. I probably forget it later, but we'll see. Okay. Remember, we cannot simply approach God. Right? We must be drawn to him. This is, this is Catholic dogma. I'll let you know when we're in theological opinion. <laughs> All right. Nobody comes to the Father except the one who is drawn by him. Okay. And that's what grace is for St. Thomas. It's, it's, I mean, it's many things, but... Grace is the elevation, the catalyzing that God gives us, whereby we can, in fact, pursue him as God. So, once again, it's not the two-piston engine. It's not that God invites you and then you simply, oh, yes, God, I respond. And this is dogma. In order to respond to grace, you already need grace. You need God's help to say yes to God. We all do. Okay? He gives us this grace. He gives us our inclination to truth and goodness. At the moment we, are, we come into existence, the moment we are created, our hearts are restless, as St. Augustine said, until they rest in him. That's a first grace. It's the first gift. He is the one who, in the very way that you are raised, in the very education you receive, in the very inklings that you have from the moment of you know, acquiring reason and starting to use reason, that he is the one preparing you by his grace to receive his grace. Right? The moment that you are baptized, if you're baptized as an infant, you are infused by grace. You did not accept it. You did not earn that. It just was given to you. And then it flowers through his preparation as you approach reason as a young child and begin slowly to accept more of his grace by the grace he's already given you in baptism. Does that make sense? So it's a little 
can be you can wrap your mind around that, right? So he knows our suitability, um, our disposition, and he works with that with each of us. He works with who we are and who who he created us to be. And so how he draws you is going to be different than how he draws me or the person sitting next to you because your histories are different, your dispositions are different. And all of that, he's working in his grace to make you free to accept even more of his grace. So growth requires grace. Growth in the spiritual life requires grace. It's, it's, it's not merely contingent on what we do and how much we do. Our exercises in faith, praying the rosary, going to Mass, they grow us in grace in God's life. But the point is not to see those practices as something we're starting. We don't initiate. He initiates, often in imperceptible ways. So religious practices shouldn't be seen as somehow a race or something that we're doing in order for him to do more. That's the, that's, which, that's the danger. You can't see your prayers or your religious devotions as something you're doing on your own initiative in order for him to do more for you. Right? Because the mere fact, and this is um, the mere fact, for example, that you might make a random visit to the chapel or to the church is in fact already a response to a graced initiative from God that is often imperceptible. Grace cannot be perceived. Even the catechism says that. You can't feel grace. It's not like a Hallmark card. Okay. So the mere fact that you move towards God in even smaller ways are a response to what God is already doing in you. Are you free? That's, and that's a question, you know, that this all leads to, are you free in what you do in your prayer life, in your spiritual life? Yes. I mean, nobody here, is anyone here not free? But the mere fact that you even come here tonight is the response to an infinite number of preparations in grace that God has planned from all eternity. So come listen to me talk. Now see, it's hard to believe that. It's hard to believe that we don't have more of an initiating role in this. That it's hard to believe that what we do in the life of faith is not somehow what's getting us closer to God. Right? But rather that what we do, we do because we are being drawn by him to be closer. See, that's the sin of Adam and Eve trying to grasp at godliness and trying to get ahead with God. It's God's mercy and his justice, his love, in fact, that is at stake with this understanding. We often hear that God, in God justice and mercy meet. They come together, that God is both just and merciful. And that's a hard thing to get our minds around because our sin-laden lives, we tend to see justice only in terms of crime and punishment. But justice in God is God being true to what his wisdom has already decreed. St. Thomas follows a definition of mercy common for his day. 
from the Latin misericordia. He says, to be merciful is to be sorrowful at heart at the misery of another. As though the misery were your own, he said. And then he says the effect of mercy is that the merciful person endeavors to dispel that mercy of the other. So you feel it deep in your bones, and then you want to run to dispel the misery of another. So mercy is for St. Thomas both uh, a passion. Today we might call it an emotion, but you know there's some footnotes to that. That's deeper for him than simply pity, because it's an, it, it leads to action. It moves to action, the endeavor to remove misery. Now, the classic Thomistic presumption is that because God is completely good and completely perfect, that God in his divine nature, unlike in his human nature in Jesus Christ, that God in his divine nature does not feel misery. He doesn't feel sadness in his divinity because he's perfectly who he is. He doesn't change. So St. Thomas says that while God may not have the emotion or the passion of mercy, he nonetheless endeavors to remove misery. And so he has, that's his mercy. Misery for St. Thomas is very specific. It's a particular type of suffering that is found only in God's rational creatures, only in you and I, in the angelic beings, because only rational creatures are called to true and perfect happiness, which is life with God. Misery for Aquinas comes from some defect, from some lack, some vacuum, some absence, something that you should have that you don't have. And so there can be levels of misery. Some misery is more profound than others. The demons in hell suffer a great misery because of their complete turning away from God. So they lack forever and all eternity the perfection that God created them for. We, more or less, can be miserable, in fact, are miserable, the more or less defects and deficiencies we lack, whether those are physical deficiencies or, and for purposes tonight more importantly, moral deficiencies, our sinfulness and our faults. In Aquinas' view, you could actually be miserable and not even know you're miserable. In fact, that's true for many people. Right? One of my professors, Dominican professors, once said that Catholic moral theologians have the hardest job in the world because we have to basically tell people how they're miserable and they don't really know it. (laughs) You may have defects that you're not aware of and don't even know to look for. Now, defects for St. Thomas are always remedied by the presence of good and perfection, of some perfecting agent that solves the defect, if you will, that fills it in, if you want. You can use a benign example, like hunger, and the good of a pizza. I'm actually not a big fan of pizza, but it always just comes to mind. Hunger, the good of pizza, and the merciful person who brings you the pizza. 
How many married couples, for example, see in your spouse, if not perfect, because no spouse is, none of us are, how many married couples speak of their marriage and their spouse as actually filling their lives and that they were in fact miserable and didn't even know they were miserable before they met the one, right? So God, because, and this flows back to my earlier observation from St. Thomas, that God is the source of all goodness and all goodness is his, he is principally the one who is merciful because he is, good, he is the goodness itself which remedies all defects to cause misery. He fills everything up. Now, throughout the Old and New Testament, mercy is certainly one of the primary attributes of God. He is the Almighty who, in his great love, is compelled to action at the suffering of his people. Indeed, compelled to action even when that suffering, those defects, are caused, as they often are, by their own choices and their own actions, their own waywardness. And so maybe it's providential that this year, when we, uh, when we feel so weighed down by the misery that we see in the world, that our Holy Francis would declare it a year of mercy. Now, if we're honest, and this goes back to how we use the word mercy, I think we can all admit that we probably don't think about mercy much. Right? We tend to consider mercy something that we invoke when we're in trouble. Yes, officer, I know I was speeding, but I'm begging you for your mercy. No, sir, I can't make my loan payment this month. Can you show a little mercy? No, professor, my paper was accidentally deleted at 2 o'clock in the morning. Could you be merciful? Americans especially, this is my opinion certainly, don't seem to be fond of mercy. We don't like to give it. We don't like to ask for it. Because we tend to see mercy as condescending. It's a stooping down of one who has power to one who doesn't, one who has means to one who doesn't, one who is not suffering to one who is. And with God, that's exactly what it is for St. Thomas. And we can be thankful for that. God, who is all-powerful, who has every means at his disposal, who does not suffer, stoops down to us and ultimately stoops down in his son, Jesus Christ to us who are powerless and suffering. That's what mercy is. And God has that for us, we know by revelation. He need not have it because he, need, he doesn't need us. This is why Aquinas can say that all of God's works are marked by both justice and mercy. It's because mercy in God is not something that competes with justice or competes with his divine wisdom, which orders all things to truth and to him. Whatever is done by God in his creatures is done according to his wisdom, which provides a proper order and proportion, which is to say it's done rightly. Here's what St. Thomas says. Nothing is owed to creatures except for something pre-existing in them or foreknown. God owes nothing to creatures except for something pre-existing in them or foreknown. And as we learned when we discussed God and justice, that pre-existing thing that is in creatures, that makes God owe them something, 
is his wisdom and what he has deigned they are called to be and who they're called to be. But even what he wills, according to his wisdom, which secures his justice to himself, his mercy, in St. Thomas's view, goes beyond that. So mercy goes beyond justice in God. Because in his mercy, God wills to give more than his justice requires. Here's, what he's, here's, what, here's another quote from St. Thomas. For this reason does God, out of the abundance of his goodness, bestow upon creatures what is due to them more bountifully than what is proportionate to their deserts. Proportionate to their deserts would be justice. Since less would suffice for preserving the order of justice than what the divine goodness confers. Because between creatures and God's goodness, there can be no proportion, no equality. Let me give you an example from you know, our, our Christian faith. At the Easter Vigil, the exalted has a great line, right? O happy fault, which won for us so great a redeemer. O happy fault, O necessary fault, which won for us so great a redeemer. In God's justice, it is not necessary for the second person of the Trinity, the Son, to be incarnate, to to grow, to suffer, to die, and to rise in order for us to be forgiven. That wasn't necessary. St. Thomas is very clear on that. The Catholic Church is very clear on that. God can redeem and sanctify the world in any way he, he wills. Right? And injustice, that's not necessary. It was not, it's, you're sorry, I'm sorry, okay, now let's move on with life. I could have done it that way. But it's God's mercy, you see, that more bountifully does and goes beyond what is mere justice. So in his mercy, he becomes one like us to show us not only his love, but how to love to show us a human face in which we see him. God's mercy and his justice are roused in our sinfulness, by our sinfulness. And according to his divine wisdom, in different ways, and often in different ways according to the sinner. How he responds to one particular sin of yours may be very different than how he responds to the same sin by your neighbor. Because he's working with you in his grace and your dispositions. For instance, it is easy to think that when misery befalls us because of our sinfulness, that God's justice is therefore primary. And so we pray the more for his mercy, and that's good and fine. But in fact, at times, it is because of his mercy that he often chastises those he loves in this life. And because grace is required to turn back to him, sometimes it is his justice that permits the sinner to remain in sin and not to convert. And sometimes on the flip side, that is also mercy as the sinner sees how far he or she can go down the path of sin and how miserable life can actually become without God.
Now that, of course, raises all sorts of questions. One questions once again about the role of grace and human freedom, but it is an axiom of the faith that we cannot approach God without his help, without his grace. You need grace to get grace. We can see these dynamics at work, if you'll permit me a little excursion here, in the well-known parable of the prodigal son. The father grants his young son his request. He doesn't argue. He doesn't cajole. He doesn't rebuke. He simply grants his son's request to his inheritance without condition. And when his son spends all he has and winds up worse off, humiliated and hurting, hurting, dirty, and foul swine, he comes to himself. This is justice, but it is also mercy. He comes home where his father welcomes him, as we all know, with great extravagance. And so we see in the father here a person who loves without fail, who is merciful beyond apparent reason, who wants to give to his children without measure for reasons that are in fact known only to him. The father has his reasons to give so extravagantly. In his younger son, we see a man permitted to follow his own pursuits, who realizes the futility of it all. But it is precisely in his humiliation that he turns not to despair, but to hope. Hope in his father's mercy, his father's love, his father's forgiveness. He is converted because in justice, he has seen where his road has taken him. And then God in his mercy brings him back. It's an ironic twist that is coherent only in the providence of God and only in divine wisdom that the young man's life of waywardness teaches him finally what it means to truly be free in God's grace, in his father's love. In the older brother, we see a man obedient to his father, but it's a juridical obedience, it's an exterior obedience. The son, and here's where you see justice go wrong. The older son thinks he has rights with his father. He thinks his father owes him, that something is due to him, that he has earned because of his, his obedience, because he has fulfilled his duty. I have done this, now you will do that. He believes in justice. He believes he has justice with his father. But this is not the case. I'd encourage you, if you're interested, Joseph Ratzinger preached a great retreat in the 1980s to the Communio Liberazione group, which has been published. It's a small, thin book. It's called uh, The Yes of Jesus Christ. And as you read that book, you'll notice a lot of common themes with Pope Benedict XVI's encyclicals, Deus Caritas Est, God is Love, and Spaciality. Because the retreat, very thin, um, is, is, is Ratzinger's view or his teaching, spiritual teaching on the theological, the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. Now, he's not a Thomist, all right, Joseph Ratzinger, but he certainly respects and identifies with St. Thomas, and he loves St. Augustine, as did St. Thomas Aquinas. And he says in this, and this is why I, I mentioned this this evening, he says that the older brother in the parable stands in the place of all of those who see obedience and religious practice, prayers and actions, as setting them by right on the path of blessedness. I have a right to be holy and to be blessed. 
among the righteous, among those who take religious practice seriously, as all of us here do, this is surely a temptation that is always in the background. It stems from, uh, Ratzinger says, a desire for security. We want to know where we are in the spiritual life. We want to know our spiritual progress, often especially in relationship with those uh, with whom we live or work. Am I ahead? Am I behind? Now, Ratzinger, believe it or not, calls this a, a sort of Pelagianism. And to remind you, Pelagianism is the condemned heresy that we can earn our way into heaven. Okay? He calls it the Pelagianism of the pious. He says the pious Pelagian doesn't want a gift from God, but wants most of all to be secure in his relationship with God, to be okay with God in this life. So like the older brother, the pious Pelagian wants the father, wants God to notice him, to notice his prayers, to notice his fidelity, because in the shadows of his heart, in places he doesn't want to speak about, he really wants security from God. And he's trying to get it. In its worst manifestation, the pious Pelagian also wants his brothers and sisters to notice him, to see him at prayer, to be secure in his brother and sister's estimation. Like how holy she is. She's always praying. Now, Ratzinger contrasts this with another sort of Pelagianism, which he calls, funnily enough, bourgeois Pelagianism which is also a problem with justice and mercy because the bourgeois Pelagian thinks God simply couldn't be as mean as we're all making him out to be. Right? That his justice simply can't be as hard as the scripture makes him out to be. There's a lot of that in the world today. and there's, I dare say there might be some even in the church. We live in an era where clergy and theologians feel the need to defend God's innocence and purity, that he couldn't possibly let some people remain in sin, much less allow them to be condemned eternally. Well, God would do such a thing. But here's the thing, friends. We must always start with the presupposition that we are all condemned. We are all condemned in anything absolutely anything that God does for us is an act of mercy. That he need not do. Not even according to his justice. This is why when it comes to mercy and the spiritual life, St. Thomas, back to the angelic doctor, identifies humility as a principal requirement, which both sides of Pelagianism lack. He says that, and going back to Ratzinger, and I'll get back to St. Thomas, Ratzinger says that such a lack of humility, when we lack humility, it is an obstacle. It's a real obstacle to spiritual progress because it stems from an excessive self-confidence that aims for higher things, even higher spiritual things beyond reason, that does not recognize our station in life with God. He says this, This sort of pride lacks the humility essential to love. The humility to be able to receive what we are given over and above what we have deserved or achieved. The humility to receive mercy over and above justice. 
Humility, St. Thomas says, comes to us in two ways. First, when we are humiliated by others and by life, when we're humbled, which in families, and I I also say in religious life happens quite often. And secondly, when we honestly confront our failures, not simply exteriorly, but really and truly interiorly. This is why the younger brother in in the parable of the prodigal son is so important for us. Beaten up by his choices, by his life, he finally comes to a place where he lacks complete self-confidence with regard to his life. And that's what, in the end, provides the sort of graced moment for God to work and turn him back. In St. Thomas's view, while the theological virtue of faith may be the first virtue necessary to directly approach God, because grace and and virtue and the theological virtue and sanctification are infused by God as gift. That didn't come out. Let me start that over. In St. Thomas's view, while the theological virtue of faith may be the first virtue necessary to directly approach God, because grace and sanctification are infused by God as gift, St. Thomas says humility is first of all necessary to remove the obstacles of our striving for greatness on our own terms with him, with God even on our own religious terms. You see, God, the Father in the parable, wants to spoil his children. He wants to give them everything that that is good, everything that is fulfilling, everything that brings true happiness. But it is the ego burdened by original sin that simply cannot fathom this. But because God is God and not a mere man, he can be this way, he can love this way. He can love even when we are obstinate and refuse his grace, which is, by the way, the only thing we can freely do without his help, is to refuse his help. That's what sin encourages us to do. If we're honest, it's something that in the end we can't fully comprehend, this truth. It's something we have to receive. Now, I'm not talking this evening to you, and I'm not advocating, so please do not take me to be advocating any sort of laxity in the faith. The spiritual life is not simply a passive endeavor. To the one who has known God's mercy, to the one who has turned to God in hope rather than in justice, obedience springs not from duty, but as a free response to the deep, abiding, liberating love of God at work in your life. Such an obedience is stronger, it's bigger, it's more pure and open, but above all, it's more humble and therefore stands ready to receive more from God. Humility, the angelic doctor says, and this is um, a direct quote, is a disposition to man's untrammeled access, in the Latin, libra maccesum, free access to spiritual and divine goods. It is this because God wants to give this, and it's humility that allows us to receive it. Now, what does all this mean for the year of mercy in us? First, our claim on God's mercy, then, is our sinfulness. It's our defects. The hard truths about our failures, our miseries, our sins. 
It is not mercy to pretend that sin does not exist. It is not mercy to pretend that defects do not exist. If we see in ourselves no defects, no misery, then we lack the humility to be recipients of God's mercy. And Christian mercy, the mercy that then works in us, goes deeper in us than simply liberating us. Because then it catalyzes us, it lifts us to a higher level of action. And so when we are merciful as Christians, it's more than simply giving. It's more than works of charity, even though those are good things. Receiving the mercy and forgiveness of God changes us. Because in forgiveness, God at the same time infuses new grace into us. It turns us toward him, draws us in, and situates us on a new horizon to, in fact, begin to practice the very mercy we have received. St. Thomas Aquinas writes that mercy in us is not merely a work. He says it's an effect. Mercy is an effect of the theological virtue of charity, of love. When a person is living in the virtue of charity for St. Thomas, you know, faith, hope, charity, he says that there is a living and abiding, deep, personal union of friendship with God. Charity is an effect of the Holy Spirit. It's God's own love poured into our hearts that affects us. It has to. It cannot not affect us. It affects us deeply and interiorly. And so living in charity for St. Thomas gives rise to what he calls the three effects of charity, interior peace, interior joy, and mercy. It's difficult, yes, I know, to imagine being joyful and peaceful at a time when so much seems to be going wrong, when violence and death are present in everyone's life, when few of us um, are untouched and unmoved by the hatred we see in the world. How could we be peaceful? But charity is more than simply action. It's more than putting money in the poor box, as good as that is. Charity is no ordinary love. It's theological charity infused into the soul of the believer by God himself. And so it transcends the world and even our own feelings. United to faith, which God infuses, through which we know of God, we believe in God, and united to hope, which God also infuses and implants in the soul, we cling to his promises. Charity liberates us to love with a love that defies explanation, and frankly, that is beyond our natural tendency. In the end, charity makes us like God inasmuch as it gives us the power to love truly and really with his kind of love, his love despite all the reasons not to, that people often give us. And so that's why it brings peace and joy, because of my union with God. And the mercy that flows then is a divine mercy. The merciful Christian is not a person who lives in a dream world that does not exist. The merciful person, the merciful Christian, doesn't close her eyes to the suffering of others and pretend it doesn't exist. Nor does she complain about how things are or how they should be. 
There is no despair in charity and mercy. There is no despair precisely because the person living in charity knows God has won and that God will be true to his victory and to his promises. So even in the darkest of situations in which a human solution is radically impossible, as many situations in our world this seems to be the case, charity still loves and is merciful. Since charity unites us to God in a special way, mercy then moves us beyond our complaints, beyond our sorrows, beyond even our sinfulness and our own selfishness, our own self-enclosed lives, and moves us to launch out creatively to help others, to feeling for others, feeling with others, not to fix, but to feel with. And in a world of pain and struggle and darkness, those who live in God's grace, live in his charity, who have received his mercy, therefore become, in the words of the gospel, the lights, the city set on the hill and the light for the nations. And so we find that when we, when we have known God's mercy in our own lives and healing our own miseries, that we have every right and reason to live in the joy that charity brings. We have every reason to be a people of mercy who creatively love others. In fact, that's what we're all called to be. I may be one of the Pope's missionaries of mercy, but we're all called to be ambassadors of mercy, to be signposts in a dark world. And in time, as we take great joy in the progress we make only by God's grace in loving and helping others, we find that slowly we again see the world not as a dark place, but as the good world he created and is consistently recreating and bringing closer to himself. We take joy in the mercy he gives in allowing us to share in his work of healing and redeeming the world. And we find that we are at peace, a deep interior peace that no strife can take away and no misery can extinguish. Because what we realize in the end is that this is his work, primarily. We are his work, primarily. It is God's work and not ours. Thank you.